Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Deist. Jeff, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning, Ben. It's good to be with you. Jeff, I'm excited to have you on the Monetary Metals team. For anyone who doesn't know you, they've obviously been living under a rock, but why don't you give them a quick overview of how you got to Monetary Metals from the Mises Institute? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I was it's, it's a big change for me. I was at the Mises Institute about 10 years and trying to get Austrian ec- economics out there to new audiences. And it's very, very tough, as you know, in a sense, we have sort of a neo-MMT uh, rubric running uh, monetary and fiscal policy today. This idea that we have almost unlimited uh, leash for monetary central bankers is, I think, pretty scary. And we're, we're operating the U.S. federal government, maybe a third of it. Uh, during COVID, more like half of it, basically with deficit financing. So that's MMT light, in effect. So we certainly have our work cut out for us. It was great being at the Mises Institute, hearing from so many people when I left, so many notes and cards. It's just great to connect with people like you. Obviously, you've been a consumer of Austrian economics and, and read and watched things at the Mises Institute. So, you know, this idea that we could go out there and get kinetic and hopefully do something with gold in particular to pull some of that value out of it, to pull some of that money, moneyness, as Hayek would say, out of it is, is exciting to me. And so I really like the idea of doing a weekly, almost a wrap type show, wrap up type show where you and I uh, figure out what's going. And it's, it's interesting that we, we all fall in this chapter of using the term macro. And we understand what that means, of course. But the flip side is that macroeconomics in, in a sense is really a pseudoscience in a pure economics perspective because using aggregates to better understand what human beings are doing is pretty fraught. And we've seen that with some of the modeling failures of our supposed macro economist friends at the Fed and otherwise over the past couple of crashes. And boy, oh boy, it really feels like we're on the cusp of another one. And let's all hope that that's not the case. Yeah, let, let's hope that's not the case. I find this kind of MMT, you know, aggregate framework, you never use it in your real life. And anyone who ever said any of these kind of phrases or ideas or terminology, if someone said this to you in real life, you would you'd back away in, in horror, probably. I mean, if a friend said, oh, let's just put it all on your credit card, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, oh, this is my, you know, aggregate friendship, I just increased my aggregate friendship, you'd be like, oh, this is so weird. Uh, and so I agree that <laughs> economics, life, it, it, there's just a, a kind of reality and these new theories, I can't even call modern monetary theory a theory. Uh, like you like you mentioned in your book, it's not modern, it's not monetary, and it's not a theory. Uh, why don't I give you a second there to talk about the book actually and, and how you discuss modern monetary theory? Yes, MMT is fiscal first and foremost. It is a program of uh, using the Treasury Department through Congress, presumably. I hope we still ask Congress to authorize things like spending and wars, but I don't know, we're kind of bypassing them the last couple of decades. But nonetheless, you know, using the Treasury Department to simply issue money in, in many ways would be a lot more transparent than the system we've got now, wherein we create debt at the Treasury level and then the Fed provides a ready backstop for that debt and comes along and basically with a wink and a nod says, by the way, if nobody else will buy your Treasury debt during a crisis, we will. Uh, so that's a strange kind of liberty, a strange kind of free market. But yes, I think MMT is, uh, I think MMTers are are uh, having some influence today. I think as Austrian-minded people, we need to push back on that. This is an important time, I think, in America. Are we going to have just absolutely unbound debt and unbound spending? 
Are we racing towards some kind of crash? Um, you know, the political landscape's pretty bleak, Ben. So it's got to come from us out in the country if we're going to put the brakes on this thing. Yeah, completely. And, and what's scary now, as we're seeing these kind of regional bank crisis happening, you're kind of seeing a consolidation of not only the power and money into these big, too big to fail banks, but really politically connected banks. Uh, the, the small regional banks, we had Daniel Martino Booth come on, those small regional banks are the ones who are suffering and, and states and countries and counties, you know, where you knew your banker who said, oh, you know, I know Jeff, mm -hmm. we're going to give him a loan or Ben, you know, he's, he's a smart kid. Uh -huh. uh, and, and maybe we'll, we'll help him out on his journey. Those guys are going to be gone. So you're going to be a number 2,443 at, you know, JP Morgan Chase as this consolidation happens. And, you know, it's on a political level to the federal government, but now it's happening, you know, in the business level as well. Well, there's already been a consolidation relative to, let's say, the 1930s, where there were uh, orders of magnitude, maybe three or four times more small local banks in the country. So we've already seen a real winnowing down uh, since the SNL crisis in the 80s, since the Great Recession in the 2008s. So this is already happening. It's accelerating. Of course, they, they, meaning small and regional banks, do the bulk of the lending to the American people in this country. Most of us don't pick up our phone and call by JP Morgan. So the big four are going to become more important than ever. What they're going to do with FDIC insurance, all the moral hazards that that entails. I mean, you know, you just look at, we were talking about moral hazards in 2008 uh, when Lehman was allowed to collapse, but uh, other organizations were not. When B of A was forced to basically absorb countrywide, but not mark to market all those toxic mortgages at the time. I mean, there was a lot of talk back then about more uh, moral hazard, but it all looks quaint today. Um, I did a little digging around, and I mentioned this during the monetary metals shareholder meeting. You know, the total global debt in 2008 was roughly 140-ish, 142-ish. By global debt, I mean sovereign, corporate, household, family, individual, etc. Now, there's a whole layer of shadow debt, and there's a whole layer of public pensions at national and local levels, which are not included in that. But nonetheless, let's, let's call official traceable debt about 142 trillion in 08. Well, now it's over 300, maybe $305 trillion worth of debt washing around the world. And so that's 2X since 2008. Has the world become twice as rich, twice as productive in that period uh, to justify all this new lending? I would argue it, it emphatically has not which would presumably uh, support our argument that all of this has been weaponized, that the can has been kicked down the road and that things have gotten worse since then. So when, when macro becomes something that's, that just seems very gloom and doomy, um, almost you know, that, that the average individual can't understand the degree of global contagion, then I think that's a good time for us, you know, in our personal lives and certainly in our role here, monetary metals, to sort of think about the micro and what are things we can do as individuals, what are things we can do locally to protect ourselves. Because I think this macro situation is really just completely outside of our control. And I'm not sure that we can vote the right Congress critters into Washington who are going to have anything meaningful to do with U.S. fiscal or monetary policy at this point. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you ask, a person on the street, what are we going to do about the $31 trillion in debt? I don't think there's even a pat answer or a, you know, default answer that most people have. I think, you know, the higher up you get, uh, Paul Krugman, you know, will say, 
Jeff, you know, you don't understand. It's never been easier to pay off the debt. And, you know, maybe that'll placate some of his readers. Um, some people say, we'll grow our way out of this. But I mean, I think most people just kind of say, well, you know, what are you going to do about it? It should be changed. Uh, and, and that's where a bottom-up for-profit business really can make a difference the same way that, you know, other businesses like Airbnb or Uber mm -hmm. made a difference where most people said, eh, you know, it's, it's a cruddy day and the taxi service, you know, didn't pick up the phone. What are you going to do? It's mm -hmm. not like there's another choice. And now there is that other choice. Uh, the question is, how big can that scale from, you know, a ride-sharing service to a monetary question? Well, let's not forget the average person in his or her personal life worried about their mortgage, their jobs, their kids, whatever it might be. In a sense, they would say, look, back in the early 90s, Ross Perot was showing all those charts and talking about how this debt is going to add up. And David Walker, the comptroller of the currency in the mid 2000s, was, was going on a tour around the country and warning about this. And yet the sky never fell and nothing happened. And it was it was five trillion when George W. Bush entered office in 2001. It was one trillion when Ronald Reagan entered office in 1981. He called that number unfathomable. He said $1 trillion worth of debt was unfathomable. And of course, it took 200 odd years uh, to reach that limit. And now we're 31 or 32 or whatever we are, not to mention the entitlement obligations that most seniors in this country in terms of Medicare and Social Security are counting on. Uh, the fiscal gap is a whole show we'll have to do sometime. But nonetheless, uh, the average person can certainly be excused for not making their life revolve around fretting over the national debt. I mean, that's entirely rational because it's, it's wildly outside one's control. And in fact, the sky has not fallen. But what's different now is the interest debt service. I mean, I've seen charts of late. We were warning about this, the Mises Institute. A lot of people were warning about this just a few years ago. Hey, look, we've got all this debt, you know, tens of trillions, and most of it has been issued in this low interest rate environment over the past few years, especially since, you know, let's say 2008, but then a lot of it was issued in the COVID era as well. So debt service on all that was very happily low. The average weighted interest on all of that outstanding debt was well below 2%. It was like 1.6% up until very recently. And so the federal government was very happy to engage in deficit spending uh, to finance a third or even a half of its budget annual its spending every year by borrowing because it was only costing them 300, 400, you know, and then it started to creep up to 500 billion a year. Well, now it's skyrocketing. It's getting up to that six, seven, 800 billion, soon to be a trillion. And when you get up into a trillion, you're basically saying that in order to make a minimum payment on our credit cards every month, annually will cost us as much as Social Security, will cost us as much as Medicare, will cost us as much as national defense, the Pentagon and DOD and all that spending. So that's very, very scary. And yes, the MMTers are correct in one sense that uh, government debt is different. Certainly, the U.S. government has lots of assets at its disposal, lots of federal land, for example. It also has the biggest, baddest military on earth, as our friend Brent at Santiago Capital is happy to point out for us. So I understand that. And I don't think this is an immediately calamitous situation because other governments and central banks around the world are doing worse, including the Chinese, including the ECB. Uh, but nonetheless, there are natural limits on things. Um, I, I certainly believe uh, all human action is ultimately governed by physics, in a sense. 
And uh, if we continue to flaunt this, if we continue to say, hey, you know, debt, debt and deficits don't matter, like Dick Cheney famously said, I think those words are going to come back to haunt us in the form of a dramatically reduced U.S. role around the globe and also in a dramatically decreased U.S. standard of living. Uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that that doesn't happen, that some sanity returns to us. And you just wonder, Ben, can this be done uh, through... Um, well, you know, people of good faith acting to avoid this, or does it require some really unpleasant market correction? Uh, that's that's the ten thousand dollar question. Yeah, and I think uh, let let me ask the ten thousand dollar question for right this minute, the zeitgeist, which is there's a current banking crisis happening, mostly in the regional banks at the moment. Interest rates are high. A lot of their portfolios are underwater. They're just going under like every week. It seems like. Uh, by the time we get the podcast out, who knows, there might be another bank uh, under. So a lot of people are saying, here are some options to kind of stem this crisis. First uh, has been mentioned a short selling ban. So you would unable to be betting on the price of the stock going down. Second might be that the Fed will pivot. They'll lower interest rates so low that not only will this banking crisis be stemmed because the portfolios are back to normal, but that rates will actually go so low that the banks are short up and they are looking totally safe, your bank is no longer uh, under threat, that will stem the crisis. Or option three is minting the coin. Uh, we can simply say debt doesn't matter, deficits don't matter, we'll mint a platinum coin, send it over from the treasury, uh, the, the Fed will buy it, everything will be fine. Or uh, door number four, which is that there will be federal deposit insurance on all deposits, uh, regardless of the amount. Which do you think is most likely, Jeff? Hmm. Very, very tough to say. I think the trillion dollar coin uh, idea is interesting, put it mildly. Uh, Paul Krugman's for it, which tends to create a reflexive attitude in me. Uh, but nonetheless, the question would be, what would that coin be worth on the market? Were, were it to be uh, put out there for sale? You know, what would that coin actually bring in the market as opposed to the value assigned to it? It'd have to be a pretty big coin. It's got to be at least as big as a gold medal in the Olympics. Um, so no, I don't think that's likely. I think people understand that there's no difference between that and just printing more fiat in, in electronic terms. It just feels more real because it would take the form of this physical thing that would probably be housed in some nuclear bunker somewhere, I guess. Uh, no, I think they will continue to kick the can down the road. I think they will bring interest rates down uh, or attempt to. I think this has gotten out of hand though. I, the marketplace will ultimately determine interest rates, not the Fed funds rate. Uh, and so I, I think that there's no there there. We'd like to think that these really smart people at places like the Fed, and they are very smart people. And I don't think, I, I won't say this for all of them, but I don't think Jerome Powell is some sort of maniac uh, globalist WEFer who wants to destroy America so that we all have to eat bugs and live in hovels. No, I, I don't think that. I, I think he's a, a well-intentioned guy and he's a brilliant guy. Uh, but as Keith Weiner points out all the time, there's no, no person or group of people can know, especially in this global interconnected, interdependent economy, you know, where money should be flowing, what the cost of capital should be, what the so-called money supply should be. It's all unknowable. I mean, Hayek explained this to us a long time ago and the fact that we keep falling for this stuff. And uh, of course, as the supplier of the world's reserve currency, we've got this Triffin's dilemma which a lot of uh, monetary metals fans will already understand, but there's a, an inherent tension, if not an outright conflict between one, our desire to control 
as a sovereign nation, our own domestic monetary policy. And Jerome Powell has been doing that by raising interest rates aggressively to try to quell inflation, but then also supplying the world through deficits, uh, to trade deficits with enough dollars to transact business and also having the exchange rate between those dollars and whatever foreign currency you're dealing in not change or, or, or diminish too radically, right? You got to have a stable exchange rate. And then finally, you, you want to try to do both those things in a global uh, you know, environment where there's, there aren't really capital controls, at least between the main countries, uh, so that capital can flow wherever it might want to. I mean, it's hard to do all three of those things. And so not only does Jerome Powell have to manage all that, but he has to have what he calls a soft landing, which would, I would presumably define as uh, GDP stays positive. There's not a huge spike in unemployment uh, and interest rates can be allowed to normalize over time. So this is so far beyond the abilities of any one person or group of people. These aren't magicians, these aren't alchemists. Uh, as Nomi Prince calls it, monetary alchemy. I think that's such a great phrase. And so, uh, you know, it's just, it's a very tough environment. Nobody can, nobody could master it. And there's a hubris to it. There is a grandiosity to all this, that an, an economy is something that can be engineered through legislative or monetary policy fiat. And of course it isn't. An economy is about production. Economy is about capital investment and increasing production. That's how you actually increase the well-being of humans in society. And Ben, here, here's something that my, my good friend Bob Murphy's talking about. I mean, I, I hate the political rancor in this country. I hate culture wars. I don't like this stuff, but imagine all of this stuff with a really nasty economic depression or recession. You know, the scapegoating, the blame game, none of that would get any worse. So I hope that what we can convey to people uh, through this show over time is that there are deep cultural and social ramifications to all this. The idea of high time preference, the idea of moral hazard. This is all very real. And it's not just, it doesn't just exist on some economic plane. It filters down and affects everything we do, the decisions we make as consumers, as savers, as people trying to, you know, have the retirement maybe someday, maybe provide for our kids, maybe pay off a mortgage. Um, boy, you know, what a mess. So let's let's be like a diamond. Let's cut through all this. Well, that's what I love about not only Austrian economics, but in some ways, monetary metals is a science experiment, if you if you want to think about it in that <laughs> terms, in, in economics, which is that the Paul Krugmans of the world, the MMTers of the world, the Janet Yellens of the world are telling you time preference doesn't exist. It has nothing to do with interest rates. That's just some kooky, you know, Austrian theory. But in the real world, Yield mm -hmm. curves are inverted, which means, you know, if we were going to take the marshmallow test, all these strange things would happen, right? Uh, yield curves can be inverted. Um, people don't need to have interest on their savings. You can have 0.01% on your savings deposit. So your savings account looks like your checkings account. People don't need that. What they really need is stimulus checks and aggregate demand needs to be stimulated. And mm -hmm. not only is that not true, once you start reading Austrian economics, you realize it's not even that complex, right? In your own day-to-day -day life, you you want things now. Um, and that shows up in your time preference. And the cool thing about monetary metals is that we're showing that in our interest rates. So when we pay this yield on gold, in some ways we have to coax it from the current gold owners who are having it in storage or holding it at their homes. We have to offer an interest rate. And that obviously needs to not only compensate them for the risk, 
um, but for not having the liquidity as well. And that needs to be a positive interest rate. If monetary metals offered not only a zero interest rate, but a negative interest rate, the, the, your business would go under in 20 minutes. I mean, no, no one would offer you their gold. Um, and yet, that is a private sphere showing, look, interest rates must be positive. There's a floor and a ceiling on interest rates. And yet, when we look at the federal government and the most important interest rate in the world, which is the Fed's interest rate, you've seen negative interest rates. You see zero interest rates. And you see rapidly volatile interest rates. We've shot the moon towards five. And there's a you know feeling that we're going to pivot back down to zero and, and possibly negative. And it's such an obvious indictment of not only their type of economics, which says negative interest rates are fine, yield curve inversions are fine, but that you know this this has ramifications, like we're saying, in a broader social world where people accept that you know time preference can be wonky, and it is what it is. Well, a lot of our critics don't believe in the concept of time preference, and they would disagree with the idea that in a in a marketplace, interest rates are positive, and necessarily so. They just wouldn't agree. You know, my retort to that is always, okay, well, would you rather have your dream house at age 40 or would you rather have it at age 92, right? I mean, that I think most people would take it at 40, right? Because we, all things equal, we prefer consuming today versus a faraway future. And so if we're going to give someone $1,000, let's say a, a personal friend or family member in a loan and say, okay, uh, a, a year from now, you can give me back 900 um, that, you know, that wouldn't compute for most people just, uh, you know, in terms of human action. I think there's a lot we can understand axiomatically about human nature and about human action. And I know that a lot of people in mainstream economics refute that. They'd say, well, Jeff, how do we know that someone would rather have their dream house at 40? Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're weird. I mean, there's always going to be that sort of thing. But inverted yield curves, we have to understand that it took uh, the late Paul Volcker almost two years to raise the Fed funds rate from about 11-ish to about 20-ish. Okay, so that was almost 2x, almost doubling over two years, which was radical. And let's not forget, people forget this, um, prime borrowers with good credit were paying up to 21% in that period of like, let's say 1981 when Volcker was sort of finishing up his, his, his rate hikes or his attempted rate hikes. Again, the market sets rates. Uh, I don't want John Tamney coming after me about this, but nonetheless, that was a real thing. Pe you know, people with good credit were paying 21%, for example, on mortgages. It took him two years to get there. Now, fast forward to 2023, in, in just one year, we've gone from below 1%, about 8.83 Fed funds rate to over five effective funds rate. So that's more than 5x in one 12-month period, where you know, what was considered radical and aggressive, Paul Volcker going 2x was in a 24-month period, roughly. So if we're wondering why we're getting inverted yield curves, I think the one year is at about 4.7 now. I think the 10 years is about 3.5. <laughs> okay. I mean, to an extent, yes, you can use force in effect. You can sort of force things through monetary and fiscal policy to happen. The question is whether you can do any good with all of this. And uh, Frank Shostak, who uh, uh, writes over at Mises.org, he's an Israeli economist, very interesting guy. You know, he always says, hey, look, you know, money is, is just a representation. It's not the linchpin of the economy. It's not, what makes the economy wealthier is more capital. So creating more money um, or fiddling with interest rates is not how we 
create prosperity. How we create prosperity is to try to have government set the best conditions. You have a rule of law, have contracts uh, respected, don't overtax people, you know, let interest rates actually reflect. Uh, here's an idea. How about if interest rates actually reflected the savings habits of the underlying populations? Well, lots and lots of money you're putting, lots of people are saving more than their paychecks and putting it in the bank, then your cost of lending would go down and vice versa. I mean, that, that's not a radical concept, but when you try to engineer things, when you just use force, uh, we should expect these kind of radical distortions like, like the um, inverted yield curve. And, and it, you know, it, it should make us sad. It should make us angry, I think, this idea that we are cogs and that we should be uh, subject to these machinations of what our rulers want us to do. And, you know, they put us in a box and we go in the direction they want us to. We're not cattle. We're not tax cattle. Um, we're, we're human beings and we want a positive return on our money and we want the ability to save, uh, whether that's in a currency or in the stock market or in real estate or in bonds, whatever. We want the ability to save, to put away money for a rainy day. That's a very natural human impulse. All of us, if, if we're lucky, we'll get old someday and it'll be hard to work physically and otherwise. And you know, beyond that, if you even have the good fortune to do more than save for a rainy day and actually leave something behind after you die for your kids, again, the most natural human impulse. And so these truly human impulses, we turn them on our head. We turn, you know, savings is for chumps. When, when inflation is higher than interest rates, you know, when you're not even treading water by putting money in the bank or putting money into something, let's say a, a CD or something safe. Uh, that forces you out to, you know, to save, to chase yield. I mean, that's that's very anti-human policy. But I would argue that both our monetary and fiscal policy are anti-human. And 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 here's the thing. Here's how I see monetary metals. And and bear with me if this sounds pitchy. I look at it. I think differently than Keith Keith Weiner in some senses. Is that here's what we know is that for a couple thousand years, several thousand years now, gold has never gone to zero. And ne neither the advent of pure fiat, let's say since 1971, really er er earlier than that, uh, you know, the introduction of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, um, the introduction of MMT into more mainstream thinking, uh, neo-Keynesianism, uh, all these fiscal policies, the biggest, baddest military, you know, none of, none of these things have ever made gold go to zero. And whenever it's allowed to be, gold has an element of moneyness to it. In other words, if you simply allow people to transact, some people will actually use gold or demand gold. Uh, gold contracts, fortunately, now are legal once again in the United States. They were not at one point. Um, so gold has never gone to zero. I'm not saying it couldn't. I'm saying it never has. It always has at least industrial or jewelry uses. It's always had a degree of moneyness to it. And then the final factor would be that there's you know, a couple hundred thousand metric tons of it sitting around all over the world. It's sitting in central bank vaults, it's sitting in private households, it's sitting in, in uh, deposit boxes at banks, it's sitting on the balance sheet of some public, but God, we can't even begin to imagine the, the private company holdings, uh, the family offices, all this gold is sitting there at, at current uh, dollar valuation that's, you know, 12, 13 trillion dollars worth of gold still in existence. And we have this tremendous asset. And again, it never goes to zero. So, so even, even people who derive gold bugs, even people who are Bitcoin maximalists uh, will admit it is an asset. It has a value. 
So why are we pulling something out of this val this asset, which is otherwise basically sitting fallow all over the world? What if that could be used to finance as collateral or otherwise production of goods and services? Well, that's a hell of an idea. We just need governments to get out of the way and allow that to happen. So I don't think, I don't think gold has to go to $5,000. I don't think Bitcoin has to be outlawed or regulated by the powers that be. Um, I don't think we need to return to a gold standard. I, I don't think any of these um, dramatic what ifs needs to happen to say that there's a right here, right now, under current conditions, there's a value proposition to, to putting all this gold that's sitting around to use. I think I think it's pretty fascinating, and uh, you know I'm I'm in, encouraged that more and more people since 2008 and now with this new crisis are waking up and thinking outside the box. You know, that's, that's so important. And I hope that we can use the marketplace to sort of prove this concept of ours. Absolutely. I couldn't think of a better note to end the episode on. Jeff, I want to thank you so much. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the first episode. If you have any ideas or comments on inflation, how it's impacting you, how you're protecting your wealth, what topics you want to see covered, what you want Jeff and I to discuss next, leave a comment in the description. And thanks so much for tuning in.